what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. This episode is supported by the Warm Front Chest Warmer, and you're asking yourself right now, what is a Warm Front? Well, it is a thermal fleece bib for cycling, running, skiing, and we've even had customers that are commuting with it, just wearing it because they uh, want to be warmer, wearing it to their construction jobs. It's been sold all over the world, Australia, the UK, Latvia, US and Canada, even Dubai. We have a customer in Dubai. It's a company I started a couple years ago because I was sick and tired of being cold on the bike and not having enough stuff or carrying too much stuff. And literally with the help of dozens and dozens of people helped get the company and the product to where it is right now. It is essentially the Goldilocks of outdoor apparel. Not too hot, not too cold. If you get cold, put it on, you get hot, take it off, roll it up, stuff it in your pocket. It rolls down to smaller than a pair of socks. It is made by hand here in Colorado by my friend and business partner, Linda, with a collaboration from Function Apparel and Polar Tech. I guarantee it personally 100% if you don't like it, if it doesn't make your ride and your outdoor activities more comfortable, send it back, no questions asked. For more information and to get warmer, and prevent purple nurple, go to thewarmfront.com. That is T-H-E-W-A-R-M-F-R-O-N-T.com. Okay, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks for listening. I'm here with uh, Chris Anthony, who is a recent inductee into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame. Congratulations on that, Chris, and thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's nice to finally meet. We've been emailing. I look back probably for like eight, ten years, and to finally meet face-to-face. Yeah, to uh, our paths, to finally make them cross here in Denver. So it's it's really nice, and post-ski season, I have a little bit more time to sit down and focus on quite a few things. Good, good. It's nice to finally meet. So I wanted to talk about the documentary that you're working on absolutely dive into that because it sounds like a really cool project yep um this has become a passion project for sure it's uh it's a project that uh, over the last uh several years has hunted me down and uh won't take the grip on me off and so i finally decided to um embrace it and so what this documentary is about is about the legendary 10th Mountain Division of yeah. World War II um, that came into development in 1941 um, as to fill a gap in our U.S. military, specifically the Army, as we were lacking the military force that was efficient in cold weather mountain warfare. And so the resolve to that was to develop a unit, a light infantry unit, that would be um, proficient in those that, in those fields. Um, because of the, um, the, the gentlemen or the group of men that kind of came to a table in Stowe, Vermont in, in the early 40s and realized that um, 
we lacked this type of um, defense and military unit. They were all skiers. So they um, really kind of focused their energy behind making a ski unit. And um, that's what ended up being the 10th Mountain Division a few years yet later when they got approval from FDR, the president of FDR, and basically given a um, blank check to develop this group. And of course, once they were given the, the go-ahead, they decided that their first initial recruitment would be um, skiers because that's who they were and that's who they knew. So they started sending the word out around to all the ski clubs in the United States as a lot of them were Ivy League, of course, back then, the ski teams and the ski clubs, and um, put the word out that we have a new unit of the military, the Army, that would be the first American ski troop. And um, it was quite romantic sounding at the time. So uh, as soon as the word got around um, throughout the United States, a lot of skiers stepped up and signed up, mainly because of what inevitably was going to happen. We were going to be pulled into World War II. And a lot of people um, knew that this was something we needed to stand up for as citizens you had uh, a whole country come together and uh, realize we had one specific enemy and then eventually two after December 1941 when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. So we had a specific goal as a country and came together. And for these men, this is where they felt that they could be the most proficient was in what they were most familiar with, and that is um, the mountains and especially winter. So the first uh, wave of the 10th Mountain Division, which, by the way, was all voluntary, um, um, came together and it was made up of these basically almost world-class athletes. Well, there was quite a few world-class athletes. So, um, and a lot of them had you know, year, recent European backgrounds. So guys that just came and migrated from Europe to escape the tyranny of what was happening with Germany and the Hitler. And because of their skill sets of being famous ski racers, came to the United States to um, uh, be part of the growing industry that was here. Um, you know, people like Walter Prager, who's uh, a part of my documentary, was a world champion in 31 and 33 and 35, I believe. And he was from Switzerland, but he took the op the his reputation, his brand, and he was able to come to the United States and became the head coach for Dartmouth. And um, then instantly, when he saw this recruitment for this military unit and an opportunity to go back and defend his homeland, he signed up. So here he had this world champion, world class athlete, um, becoming part of this very special unit, and. Um, you had a bunch of guys such as um, Walter signing up, and um, a lot of them were either going to be Olympians or would be on the next Olympian, Olympic team, like Steve Knowlton. Um, and they, uh, they, they came together. So if you can imagine a group such as like myself, in 19, 20 years old in the 40s, and all of a sudden this uh, kind of 
almost a different type of club came about and signing up for it, you had a really unique collection of men coming together, not necessarily military men or army men, but just these highly dedicated, highly skilled, highly athletic, and to tell you the truth, with very intelligent and from upper class families, a lot of them, and successful families. So the group came together and had one of the highest IQ um, um, measurements out of any military unit still to this day for a regular military unit and um, high morale. And all of a sudden, here they were together building this infantry unit, which eventually they built them a base camp here in Colorado, which became known as Camp Hale, named after General Hale, who actually went to East High School um, during the Spanish-American War. He was a general. But um, this uh, in, the, in our Colorado Rockies, this unique unit came together. And then right after the war, because of a clerical error, the whole camp was dissembled. And, um, and much like the, 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 the camp disappearing, but these men of World War II, unlike what, how people are today, kind of got done with the war and moved on with their lives. They didn't have the opportunity to tweet about it, Instagram about it, social media grab it, about it. They put all their stuff in trunks and in files, and they got on with their lives and built what is a, a great country. Um, so it wasn't until later on that a lot of the details started coming out, but um, especially right now, it seems like a lot of the details are coming out. But when they returned to the United States, how they really impacted, say, myself and millions of other people um, was through skiing and in the outdoor industry. What these guys developed was unbelievable. They developed over 62 ski areas and you know, did things like the first Nike shoe was built by Bill Bowerman, who is a 10th Mountain vet. No kidding. I yep. didn't know that. He built the first pair of shoes for the famous uh, mid-distance runner, Prefontaine, um, that eventually became Nike. And um, there's just story after story because, again, these guys were, they, were, they weren't low achievers. They are high achievers. So when they came back, they developed, um, I mean, the names associated with our outdoor industry is just Endless. Uh, Bob Dole, of course, was a uh, 10th Mount Division, and we know him. He's still alive, actually. I really would love to get an interview with him. He's um, wheelchair bound now, but he's alive and well, Senator Bob Dole. Um, uh, just amazing men. And so, what was really uh, kind of fell away for a long time was what they actually did in wartime. And that stuff's starting to really pop up in the last several years and um, be told. Like, there are uh, the big stories of Riva Ridge and Mount Belvedere that took place in Italy. Um, but now there's a lot of surrounding stories that are starting to come about um, what took place. I mean, you heard about what they did after the war, you heard about the characters they were before the war, but you didn't hear what happened in the war. And um, I um, I came across them just because I grew up here in Colorado and I saw the names and everything, but I still didn't understand what their story was until it was suggested by not just one person, but so many people when 
while being an athlete for the Warren Miller films. So I've been skiing for them my entire career, um, 28 years. But I started to have a little bit of impact on some of the content that was in the Warren Miller films. I could at least make some suggestions. And people kept coming to me. They go, you got to tell a story about the 10th Mountain Division. There's so many great ones. And one of the great ones was about the uh, Trooper Traverse, they called it. So this took place in, um, you know, 1943, I do believe. And on a weekend pass, a group of the guys went from Camp Hale, near between uh, Red Cliff and Leadville, and went over the mountains with all their new experimental gear to Aspen and partied in the Hotel Jerome. So <laughs> this is the stories that you heard about, like left and right. You heard about them coming down to Denver on a weekend pass and rappelling off the you know the roof of the Brown Palace and going to the whorehouses in Leadville and all this stuff. These guys, you got to remember, though, they were 18, 19, 20 years old. They were uh, a fun-loving group. And so those stories were out there and all these amazing accomplishments trying to go up holy cross on their gear and stuff so i wanted to tell those stories i didn't know about anything about the wartime story at all and um i got shut down on all of those stories by the forest service they wouldn't let me go and replicate the pass or film on national forest service land even though this is our history but i did talk the warren miller guys into um coming up and at least interviewing some of the guys while they were in um, Vail and Camp Hale for a reunion. And so this is around 11 years ago. And when we started doing those interviews, that's when I started hearing the deep stories and some of the stuff that was coming out. And I sat there in awe as I was asking questions, probably have um, 10 hours of interviews, if not more. They're sitting down in the Warren Miller offices, which they're going to allow me to have access to. And um, we all fell in love with what was going on. And we realized we were we had something more important than the original plan here. So nobody wanted to let this go at this point. And um, I had already raised a bit of money to try to produce something. So what eventually happened is that we produced a segment for one of the annual Warren Miller films. And that's like a 10 minute long segment, but really we couldn't use the money that I raised because what the way I raised the money was through the ski museum and that money can't be used for a profitable purpose. Mm. It's, a, it's a nonprofit fundraising effort we did. So we did the segment for the Warren Miller movie and Warren Miller Entertainment was very creative about the funding and things like that. But the money that I raised sat in a pot up at the museum. So afterwards, we realized we shot a lot of extra footage and we could dig into some archival footage from the Denver Public Library and we could build a documentary. And so what came to be was Climb to Glory, uh, a documentary that I've used to for speaking engagements, I've taken into schools, I've shared with uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and raised a lot of money with it for different non-charitable organizations. And it it opened up the <laughs> the door where all of a sudden a can of worms were. Now all of a sudden I'm the uh, 10th Mountain Division expert or historian, which I'm not, which is the irony. And um, 
it's it's been all of a sudden people started dropping stories in my lap so simultaneously why this has all been going on and this is another story behind the story is i've been going over to italy for over 20 years and uh first originally to go visit a a friend that was on the italian national team um, to visit his home village and um and and see where he lived and i fell in love with the area and i decided to start bringing people over as well as one year we filmed a warren miller segment there so for 20 years i've been revisiting taking people to this part of italy the northeastern corner and i did ask over the years was any world war ii did that take place here and everybody said no um well it was a big spot for world war one and a lot of wars prior to that this part of the world has been fought over for centuries um but no, nobody even acknowledged that there was any portion of world war ii there um the there's a a mountain that i was always attracted to near the village that i go in italy that i fell in love with and you can see it from three countries now, Slovenia, Austria, and Italy. I'm Slovenian. Oh, you are? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, that's, well, okay. There's a huge connection here. Um, the The mountain sits in Slovenia. It's called Mount Mangart, and it's very photogenic. It's it's majestic. It's beautiful, and I was attracted in so many ways. It's um, And um, and then uh, I was told that there had been a ski race on the mountain. I had no idea what that meant. Like, was there a ski race last month? Was it last weekend? Was it a few years ago? I didn't think that the ski race was going to be this ski race that would become the catalyst for what now is my second documentary. But what eventually led to me finding out this little bit of knowledge was that a, a retired general of the Slovenian mountain troops, um, came to the United States. He visited the museum in Vail, Colorado, and also the Denver Public Library because he's also very passionate about mountain troops. And he especially admired the 10th Mountain Division, the American 10th Mountain Division, for what they had done in their relatively young lives compared to mountain troops around the world. And so he... Um, visiting upon visiting both the museums and the Denver Public Library, he realized there is a gap in their story. And that gap actually took place from May 1945 to um, July 1945. So approximately 75 years ago, 74 years ago right now. But when I want to have this done, it would be 75 years ago. Um, but 74 years ago, um, we're getting close to the date, actually, today um it's may 3rd today for your podcast but 74 years ago uh germany surrendered i just thought of that and um the 10th mountain division was in northern italy at lake garda and when they got the news that the germany hitler laid down his arms they were wondering what is going to happen now because still japan was fighting in the pacific and word was that some of the guys might have to go all the way back over to the Pacific and fight there. So they were celebrating, but yet didn't know which direction was going to happen. And um, the, 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 from the 10th Mountain Division was split up into different groups. And um, 
Some were put on ships and going to come back to the United States, retool, and go into the Pacific. The atomic bomb dropped en route, so that completely ended the war. But simultaneously, what was happening that was highly ignored was what is now Slovenia was Yugoslavia. And um, Yugoslavia's dictator was Tito. Tito was an ally with Stalin. Stalin was, and Russia were loosely allies with us in England in taking down Germany. As much as reluctantly um, we need to be allies with them. So, but this was also uh, an opportunity for Stalin and Tito and that part of the world to rise up in a way. And this is kind of the rise of communism and the way that it lasted for several years. But Tito decided to take that opportunity where everybody was kind of distracted and invade Italy. And it's not really talked about very much, but he sent his troops that weren't anything of the technology of the American powerhouse that we were, and uh, certainly was kind of probably backed by Stalin. You know, Stalin probably gave him, go for it. Um, but so what happened was Tito sent his troops over the mountains into Italy, and that those are the mountains of surrounding the little village that I've been traveling to for the last 20 plus years that was also the front line of World War I. So um, the 10th Mountain Division split up into three different groups and one were sent to Trieste, the border town on the Adriatic, and two were sent deeper into the mountains. And um, they pushed, uh, pushed the Yugoslavian army back out of that part of the world and um this mountainous terrain was perfect opportunity for them and amongst all this time and the catalyst of my story that's leading to all this is that um the 10th mountain division had captured all the german ski gear you know Mm. found it in a in a barn uh somewhere which i'm still trying to locate where that barn was but they Ended up with all their ski and alpine climbing gear, which was nicer than any of their stuff. But they had it. They also captured all their whiskey and liquor and everything <laughs> else. So they were they were in good shape. And um, they um, success after they successfully pushed Yugoslavia out. Being the guys that they were and being the backbone that they had, they saw a snowfield up on this big majestic mountain off in the distance. It had uh, a road up to it, kind of. The road was covered in avalanches and rocks, and it wasn't, you know, pig by any means. But they decided we need to get up to that snowfield and let's have a ski race. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and so that just the they used the power of military might and um, the vehicles and opened up the road. It's a it's quite a climb up to this. It's the highest paved road now in Slovenia, um, and they got to Mount Mangart and they organized what is known as the first post World War II ski race, and that's kind of the magic behind my story. I'm a skier, and I gotta tell a story about the first post World War II ski <laughs> race, and simultaneously it can give a little bit more history about this amazing group and part of our our history that connects to here in Colorado and 
and skiing and and so that's become my my next project and um the project that i've been working on now i tried to give this story away several times but uh nobody grabbed it and it actually was supposed to find me i guess and the retired general of the slovenian army he was on me for the last several years um wouldn't let me go he developed great connections with nato and the u.s embassy and slovenia and everything and i've had full and complete support from that end i couldn't let this go they were gonna let go at one point you know 30 plus volunteers out of Bovet Salini came up and helped open the road so I could recreate the races and make it look like it was 74 years ago. And um, I, I was obligated to it. I'm having music composed for it. People are coming forward and helping me and because I'm going to have all original music for it. Um, I have two cameramen out of Italy that have just been amazing. A, a father-son unit that have just done magical things for me uh now i have warm miller entertainment that's allowing me into their archive footage for the interviews that we did for the first documentary um the stories just keep coming everywhere i go another little bit of material or information drops in my lap and i'm supposed to do this so my goal is to have this done by um may of 2020 as to be ready for basically the 75th anniversary of the ski race. So this has become an overwhelming uh, project that I am doing. And the way that I'm doing it is I'm doing it under my foundation. So I have a, a youth foundation that's been focused on outreach for youth and education for youth for the last, um, well, i been doing this for 20 years but in the last six years i've become a 501c and during that time when i'm reaching the kids or in the classrooms or bridging the kids to opportunities it always starts in the classroom but empowering the kids with knowledge in an entertaining way has been one of my goals and the way that i've been able to do that is provide them with entertaining content uh, whether it's my clips out of the warren miller films and Afghanistan, you know, Iran or Ecuador or wherever it is, but I've been able to share this story. And so this is a new story and this will be world history, Colorado history, ski history, um, American history that will be wrapped up into an entertaining documentary piece. So how I'm doing this is building a not-for-profit documentary through my foundation and funding the whole thing through individual donations people that have supported it whether they're writing small checks big checks I'm, I've, re I've requested for some grants and things um i've definitely put my own money into it and i've just been piecing it together little by little a lot of people have volunteered you know giving me discounts on their time um interviews the, the guy that's composing the music with me is giving me a highly discounted rate People have fallen in love with this story, so it's a, it's a definitely a, uh, everybody that's being involved is falling in love with it, and they're helping in whatever way they can. So, um, yeah, hope I'll I'll have this thing pieced together hopefully in time to have it done for the seventy fifth anniversary of the event. Well, and I think when it's a 
passion project and it's so close to who you are <clears throat> that people see that and they want to it doesn't become about the money right if you were trying to make this blockbuster film whatever it was right people would kind of see that, that that's differently but just hearing the the passion of it you know i think it's it's just it's really encouraging to hear that people share your vision and all that it's an amazing piece of world history and Colorado history. And, you know, you've got the seals in California and the rangers and Fort Benning and all that. And there's this, you know, um, incredible story right here in our backyard. And the more I dig into it, I didn't know there's like 33,000 guys in this division. This is amazing. It just, the yeah. more I look at it. At one point there was uh, between 15 and 17,000 people, uh, men, and uh, there was between 300 and 500 women up at Camp Hale. And um, actually, there was German prisoners that were there as, and they were doing work, you know, they were working in Camp Hale that they brought all the way, that they captured from Germany and brought them all the way here to help run the camp. Um, it's uh, remarkable what was up there. And the reason that it was chosen to be in that location is because of the altitude and because of the environment, but also the railway went right through there. Mm. So they were able to build this camp in seven months and um it, yeah it's 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 amazing that it was there it's gone now um currently uh one of our congressmen or senators i forgot which one is um they're, we're trying to make a historic uh place and at the same time they're going to try to return it to a little bit of its natural environment while still keeping the history there because they it was a wetlands area that they literally in seven months straightened the river, flattened the ground, and they built this. So it's now a recreation site, but um, if they could return it back to its natural state, it would be better for the environment, but at the same time, keep our history. So it's a balance of, of all that, for sure. Um, this, it, it, is, it is an amazing story, and um, I... I, the way it found me and the way it keeps grabbing onto me is unbelievable. Even this journey of trying to tell this story, how many other stories along the way have fallen in my lap. So I've even changed how I'm going to tell the timeline of this story and how I'm going to present it to the audience because other little nuggets keep falling in my lap that I can't skip by. Like, um, you know, what happened in Lake Garden in Italy um, a few days ago, 74 years ago, um, hasn't been told really either till recently. 24 of the guys were killed on a night assault there to try to take Mussolini's compound um, where he was supposedly held up uh, near Lake Garda in northern Italy, and they drowned. Um, mm. There was 25 guys on this um, amphibious boat, but a uh, vehicle, but um, one of the guys was a college swimmer. I, you know, again, going back to these were true athletes on there. And he was able to swim from the middle of the lake back to shore. The other um, 24 drowned. And they recently just found the vehicle. They sent down a submarine to wow. find the vehicle. And it was one of those stories that just never got told. So they just recently put up a monument to it. Um, so this is something that I might um, actually add just a little 
tidbit in my journey of this story because it's it's important and um just like i i found you know i went to riva ridge i went to belvedere there was an opportunity to fly a drone over both of them so i have that footage so i'm gonna work that in there just to give the people an idea of how magnificent this task was that they accomplished in those two battle locations um you know, a few years back, before I knew all this, some somebody said, "Oh, you know, they were this glorified unit that never saw combat." That is so not true. Um, it's just that more of their attention came from what they did post World War II, and and the fact that they were skiers, and a lot of people thought that maybe they this was the spoiled unit of spoiled brat unit of the military, and it wasn't. What these guys accomplished in the short period of time that they were in Europe was amazing. They suffered the largest amount of casualties in the shortest period of time in World War II. And um, they fought with heart and they stayed beside each other. And um, they had amazing, amazing leadership, but high morale. And um, just, a, a, just a great story, great thing, big part of our ski history, too. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it is a cool one. I'm going to let him out real quick. <laughs> <laughs> the monster in the closet. Let's go. Let's go. This is me. Ah. Come here. I heard you sniffing in there. <laughs> Come here. Let's go. Was there another one back there too? Or is so, that just him? Uh, Cole, who's my producer, has got three dogs. He's oh, got okay. Vinny, who's a that lab. He's got um, <laughs> Fletcher, who's a big black lab. Oh, nice. And then a dingo, who's <laughs> actually a blind and deaf Boston Terrier oh, slumping wow. in there too. That's <laughs> <laughs> hands full. So, but this is what I love about doing this. It's like, whatever, man. Yeah, it rolls it's all it. part of it. It's, it's good. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, going back to the what they accomplished, I saw um, a quick little um, thing on your website where you're skiing. It looks like real skinny skis, and you're kind of going into a pond. So have you skied on their equipment? And what's their setup like back then, like the combat ski setup? Yeah, so that actually what you saw, and it's kind of, again, ironic because I certainly didn't grow up in like a military family, and I never served for a country. But uh, I guess this is maybe one of the ways I've been able to give back. But through my years with the Warren Miller uh, films and getting to do some really creative and fun, unique stuff, as I've gotten to um, train with the Marines, our mountain unit of okay. the Marines, and that was in Nevada. And so what you saw was when we were doing some maneuvers, mountain maneuvers, and part of their uh, drills and testing is those guys have to they cut a hole in the ice of a frozen lake and they literally this is part of their basic training they have to ski right into the hole and submerge themselves into frozen water and then come up and self-rescue themselves and uh in the mean while they're doing that you know talk and and not freak out and be asked questions by the drill sergeant and um so we, as the Warren Miller athletes, since we were thrown into the mix of training with these guys, that was one of the things that we had to do. <laughs> and it was definitely one of my more memorable uh, 
moments in a Warren Miller segment because uh, we're going to do what <laughs> <laughs> we we were told we were going to do something like this before we even got to the site. So it was it was, it was sitting in the back of our heads and it had us a little nervous. But um, and they held me out to be the last of the skiers to go in. And um, as I was as I was sitting there uh, treading water and frozen water, they moved the camera twice. So I was in there for twice as long as I needed to be, and I was couldn't speak at one point. And um, <laughs> oh my gosh! And you had to what they call I can still remember it, high dagger, high dagger. So you had to use your ski poles and pull yourself out of out of the frozen water and pull yourself up onto the ice and um <laughs> so you had are to your skis still on at this point or no, do you get they, them off? they um so the way that they they had the skis on ropes and we kind of just went in with this you know the skis not really attached to our boots so yeah really if it was real real you know, the skis would be attached and you'd have to figure out how to get those off while treading water and let the skis sink and then get yourself out so we cheated a little bit by not having the skis totally attached, but we did go in with the skis on. So that was with the U.S. Marine Corps that I got that opportunity. And then I had another unique opportunity with the U.S. Navy by being flown out to the USS Nimitz. Not once, but twice. The first time was to actually go speak to the, the troop on, troops on the ship as they were um, preparing to go to the Gulf. And... Um, there, I guess there were apparently their PR director and a few other people were skiers and they realized they missed the Warren Miller tour because they're going to be going on maneuvers. So they flew me out there with the film to show the film on the ship. And as I was out there, I kind of pitched the idea that it'd be a really fun place to shoot the Warren Miller segment or at least part of one. And next thing I knew, two weeks later, I was flying back out to the ship now on its way to the Gulf, so top secret location, going at a, a classified speed, and landed on the deck again, and spent three days in on the ship watching them prepare for combat, and we were filming amongst that, and on, on the ship with um, ski gear. So I came with all my winter gear and a pair of 223 downhill skis <laughs> that I had to walk around the ship with and, you know, through the little cubby holes and everything else. And um, it was a hilarious segment. So they had me kind of play the role of the stowaway uh, on the ship. And, um, uh, you know, I did everything from swab the decks to clean the toilets to make beds to uh, do dishes in the kitchen. And... Um, it was. It made for a really funny story. Again, it only comes out for like a couple minutes of that in the Warren Miller films, where we have all this stuff in the archives that you can make a full film out of. But it's uh, that was another great opportunity. And then, of course, uh, this thing with the, um, the U.S. the U.S. Army through the Tenth Mountain Division. That story. Uh, I guess the only one that I kind of missed out on was the Air Force. You know, if I could have spent some time with the Air Force somehow. It would have been great. I actually kind of pushed that a little bit um, because up near Vail is the high altitude training center for our uh, helicopter pilots oh. that fly in Afghanistan, and they're 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 stationed in um, Eagle. But I didn't get uh, the opportunity to. 
talk them into anything. But um, it would probably involve a parachute. I don't know what you feel about that. I've parachuted. I've done a okay. lot of those things. But yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been a fun journey. But this um, what we I did ski on the tenth mountain division gear from the period, and it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, for them, it's probably awesome. But we're spoiled now with everything sure. in our lives compared to what our past generations have had. And um, Was there actually well, ski companies back then? Um, there were a, sm- a couple small companies. Um, they, I think that I forgot who they commissioned to actually make the white rockets or the ski gear. Um, I mean, they um, everything was being developed for them specifically. I mean, they, they, there was, there's a whole history of snow machines that were, being developed for those guys that are so pretty much everything we have on snow now machinery wise is somehow that has a loose link to being experimented in camp hale in 1943 and 44 because you know we we had a you know the military was preparing for war so there was no budget problem it was like we need to build things i mean ropes new types of ropes new type of fabrics new type of boots so many things came from that. Um, they learned a lot too, but was not working. You hear a lot when I interviewed the guys, their tents were horrible. So they, they had these tents that were sent to them and then they ended up never sleeping in their tents because the tents didn't breathe. Mm. So they'd wake up in the morning and there'd be all this moisture in the top of their tent and it would start coming down on them and it'd soak them. And so that, that, that was horrible because so they would sleep outside on, the branches and on the snow because that was safer than sleeping in the tents so of course that evolved you know the material that was made for tents for nowadays um everything they everything was being developed for these guys and there's some linkage to it all now climbing gear um the ski gear you know all fabrics all sorts of things were were happening in camp hale it's quite remarkable and that's again that's a totally different story if you just were to focus on the machinery just in camp hale mm-hmm. that had to be developed um at the time the surface lift that was put at ski cooper the little ski area that's above near leadville and between vale and leadville which was built for them that surface lift that was put in there was the longest in the world you know so they army corps engineers not only did they build camp hale and seven months but they built a small ski area with the largest the longest surface lift in the world so th- these things happen quickly they happen fast it's it's sad that wartime means that we learn to evolve fast but it, if you can look at the bright side of it it's it's um, remarkable what came from it these amazing men and amazing equipment you know when i sat on the uss nimitz and wandered that thing i, I got to wander the whole ship which even the guys enlisted are not allowed to do but I had access to almost every room. There was one room I wasn't allowed to go in. But um, when you think about what goes in to this technology and these things, and the purpose is scary, but it's amazing what humans can do and all of a sudden put under pressure and their minds are set at what we can build. And at the same time, it makes you think we haven't evolved that much either lately. I mean, we... I think what happens in a short period of time if the pressure is there. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of pressure back then, especially during World War II. 
Yeah, that, I that's one of my dreams is to do a cat shot off a carrier. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. I, I grew up with Top Gun and and seeing that and just the yeah the. I think that's why I love road biking so much. It's probably the closest I'll ever get to flying and carving like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of my dreams. So good on you for doing that. Yeah, that was cool. I got <clears> to <throat> go in an F-18, do a loop you know, off the deck and land on it. But I landed on it four times or two twice and then took off twice in a cargo plane and stuff. And I can still remember the cargo plane was in the back. It didn't have windows, but um, I remember the back of the the plane opening up and it was just like being on a different planet yeah. uh, on the deck of, of the Nimitz while, while it was fully functional and they were planes were landing and taking off like every 30 seconds. It was, it's noisy. It's unreal. It's incredibly organized. It's, there's 5,000 men on that and women on that ship and everybody has a specific job and to make it function. It's unreal. Well, and if you're going on your second visit, when they're getting combat ready, like mm-hmm. everything, like this is not. It was real. Yeah. There was, yeah. you know, there was, I went down into, it's amazing when I got to see, I walked down into where all the missiles were and bombs and everything, you know, with warheads on them. I saw it and it was unreal. I sat, I climbed one night because I couldn't sleep. The place was so noisy even though I was in great quarters, but I climbed one night all the way up to the crow's nest um, where the highest command would sit during, and but it was probably two in the morning and I sat up there as night maneuvers were going on and I was up there alone looking over this thing. It was the quietest place on the entire ship, but I was blown away by what I was witnessing and the activity and when you think about the money that goes into this and what is going in to defend our freedom. Um, people take that for granted and they, it's, it's remarkable. Could you sense a difference in the, like the mentality or the, the uh, mindset between the people on the ship from your first visit that was training and then the second visit when it was headed towards combat? Actually, no, because I think they're so highly trained and so specialized in whatever they're doing that it's just by habit, you know? So they're just doing what they're doing, they're doing every day, whether it's in training or in combat, it's all the same. And it's gonna, it is with the same intensity. So, you know, and a lot of the guys really in different parts of the ship have no idea what's functioning happening on the other side of the ship, nor really what their full objective is so they know what they specifically have to do and their role is and you better be doing that um as best as you can the entire time the only place that was kind of light hearted was in the cafeteria Mm. and both both trips is the same you know so it's just they're they're in a role they're in a that's their way of life and their habit and they're functioning like they would every day. So yeah, there is no, it seemed to me like there was no difference between training and operations, you know, full operations. It might be different if say all of a sudden you did see bombs going off nearby, but you know, a lot of times with those aircraft carriers, they're, they're a long ways away. I did witness one thing that was super intense though, um, that (laughs) I probably wasn't meant to witness. 
so I was allowed, I went into uh, what was like um, the control room, like a radar room or a control room. And I walked in and it looked you know, kind of a little like Star Wars. And um, there was a, um, there was another door that was kind of like almost a Star Trek door <laughs> and went, went into another room. And all of a sudden I was, they said, Chris, come in here. And this, and this was like, top secret room and i went and sat in that room and it was full star wars like the radar the the, the intelligence that was coming into that room was unbelievable and they let me put a headset on and um they had connections with uh, the pentagon norad all the ships that were in this surrounding region san diego um and they had maneuvers going on out in the field and all of a sudden, while I was there, they all of a sudden had a bogey. Mm. So they thought. And what it was, which they weren't able to identify, was one of our friendly, one of their planes, his call sign wasn't projecting off the, 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 the plane. So it just came up as a bogey, unidentified bogey, and was heading towards you know, our billion-dollar um, top of the line defenseman. And so, I mean, the first thing is you're going to shoot that thing out of the air. You, I mean, when the, when the aircrafts are traveling, there's always surrounding defense ships and everything. They keep this thing protected. So when you have all of a sudden an indefinite craft coming towards it, everything went on high alert, but it was really calm, but intense. And I was sit- I think they forgot that I was sitting in the room and had the headset on. But they were trying to determine what what this was, and um, they they knew they were missing a plane, so they sent they act, they sent um, they put alert you know it was just like Top Gun alert five you know and yeah. they sent um, planes out to intercept, and they got out there and it, 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 the the friendly plane was waving his wings. He was doing whatever his radio, his radios were off. Everything was off and he's out there. He's like wagging the tail. He's doing whatever he can. They were able to identify it in the dark. And the, you know, he came in and he landed on the deck without any radar, without any functioning stuff. Oh, man. And made, and he did a great landing. And I got, you know, I even got to see it in calm waters landing on the deck. That there's a lot of movement on, of that ship. So this is not easy to do, you know, catch the, you know, land and catch one of the three cables. But he, he did it and it was so intense that I even got to go down to the ready room and meet him. And which is probably another thing. I mean, I just got to wander this whole place and everybody by that time knew who I was. So I went in there and I I basically went in and shook his hand because I was like, holy smokes, I was shaking my boots sitting in that room. <laughs> I wasn't sure if they were going to shoot you down or if you were going to crash on trying to land, you know? And um, it was really, really amazing to get to witness something like that. But um, it gave you reality of what is happening out there. And who knows how many times those little things happen, Yeah, you know? I just finished listening to a book called Deep Survival that talks about the the mindset of people in survival situations. And he had a whole chapter on aircraft carriers. And when you were talking about the the focus and the routines and all that, he was talking about, and the thought that popped into my head was that, you know, the 
the squadron leader was training these pilots. And he goes, when you're lined up for that approach on the deck, it's like somebody asks you what your mother's name is. Like, you don't know, like you were just that focused Mm -hmm. And, and having that, I guess, mental discipline and that ability to filter all that stuff out and just do that one next most critical thing. I was like, wow, I don't know if I've ever had that intensity of focus. I mean, these guys are, they're highly skilled. There's no doubt. And um, it's, you know, it is still as much technology we have. It's still, you know, they're, they're catching on a cable, this big, powerful, (laughs) <laughs> plane in a few seconds and i even got to, to go down underneath the um the catch cables room to see that technology that's down there that absorbs all that energy when the, the planes come in and catches a cable so there's three sets of cables you know and they built this stuff back in the 70s and right you know it what's what's crazy too is in the 70s so this the u.s Simmons, which i think just got decommissioned um so it was one of the older ones. I can't even imagine what one of the newer ones was is like. But that ship can stay out at sea forever. They, they you know, it's, it's nuclear, and it can go forever on and, and on energy. That the fact that we have and they have endless energy being produced on the ship is remarkable. It has um, you know a water saline device that can clean water so they'll they'll always have clean water and drinkable water that stuff was you know all around the 70s you know we're talking about fuel economy now and everything it's just amazing that we there is these kind of things granted it's nuclear and it's dangerous and stuff but it's amazing what, Mm -hmm. what is technology is sitting out there um the only thing that they couldn't they need to bring in it was food because they aren't self-sufficient sure. having food. But um, everything else on the ship was recyclable or could be turned around or something. It's, it's remarkable. I wanted to go back to the story you were talking about with the, the 25 guys on the, the boat. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about that? Was it an accident or was it combat that took them out? What happened? There? So the... Um, the which is so what again a couple things many things made the 10th mountain division very unique but two of the great stories are um mount belvedere and riva ridge so that the germans held high ground on and what those two locations that the fifth army could not break through the german line for years what the 10th mountain division did differently was they attacked the germans at night on a high point. Mm. So they made these ascents at night. Wow. Which was amazing. So the reason I'm telling you that is now they've moved further north to Lake Garda, all to get to where Mussolini's compound was. Um, the roads around the lake, there's there's a bunch of tunnels. And they chased the Germans all the way up to that point. And the Germans had a good stronghold again there because they could defend all these tunnels. And there was one tunnel, I think they call it the death tunnel and stuff, because they were just, if, the, if any of the you know 10th or any allies went near it, they were toast. The Germans had it covered. They could shoot them through the tunnel. They, they had, so there was just no way to get around the lake. So, of course, the 10th decided, well, we'll cross the lake at night. 
And so they did a night assault again in all these duckies. And it's, it's kind of amazing because these are mountain troops. So all of a sudden now they're in these amphibious vehicles going across the lake. And one of the duckies um, had a power failure, an engine mm. failure. So it was sitting out there in the middle of the lake. And then just a, a crazy storm came up, like out of nowhere, and made the lake really rough and um, sunk the vehicle. So uh, the 24 um, men went down with the, uh, with the vehicle. And I, I don't know if they didn't know how to swim or if they, um, you know, all their gear was just too heavy or, you know, how that, how that worked. I haven't, I need to find those details. I did write an article on the surrounding stuff, the date and all that. And there was one survivor that, you know, he was able to swim back to shore. So he had a firsthand account of what took place. But, um, yeah, that's a sad, a sad night. Um, they were taken on, you know, they were sneaking up on the, Germans on the other side. There was some mortar fire on the other, other guys and stuff. But um, I just saw a photo today um, in the town that was where Mussolini's compound was. Um, General Hayes, who was the commander of them, um, stood on top of one of the duckies on today, seventy-four years ago, and announced that Germany had surrendered and. So it was a day of celebration for sure, but he was standing on top of a ducky. Mm -hmm. I saw the picture just today (laughs) um, of that. It's amazing all the stuff that's been coming my way, like these different stories. And and what's really been cool is that um, the grandkids and and sons and daughters are now, because their grandparents have passed and are cleaning stuff out, is they're finding photos and they're finding letters and just remarkable stuff that was kind of just buried that's really cool did uh, warren ever interact with the 10th mountain because like his younger years right he was in that did they did he ever help them or interact with them when they were getting going i don't know about pre-war definitely post-war mm-hmm. he definitely had lots of interaction warren himself served during world war ii i think he was navy um he but uh the, the unique thing about the, the, the recruiting of the 10th Mountain Division in 1941, 42, around that time, was that one of their ways of, of recruiting was a filmmaker by the name of John Jay, uh, who made ski films back then. They recruited to send around the country with his ski films and do kind of like a Warren Miller tour. <laughs> which you know, before Warren Miller and show the ski films in lodges and ski clubs and everything. And that was a way afterwards to um, let people know that there was a new division of the army called the 10th Mountain, which would become the 10th Mountain Division, but the new ski division. And so it was a recruiting tool. And he had this uh, from what I read, uh, a really beautiful a woman with them. So they were, they were basically doing <laughs> the, hurt. the pre, pre, you know, they were going to ski towns and showing ski movies and recruiting people to sign up for an army, a beautiful girl and a guy showing ski films. It's the whole story is classic of how this whole division came about. And, and you can imagine the characters that were in there, which is also talked about because they tried to 
put a leadership in place of these kind of honorary ski guys that was like really military level and that guy was not connecting with them so they, they went through a few uh leaders before they were kind of on their way but um because they weren't your typical you know yeah uh, uh, you know military guys yeah is this uh your first time behind the camera i mean did you have any experience in filmmaking from the other side of that um yeah i've, I've had um pieces okay uh, i'm not going to say that i'm a filmmaker but in some ways I, i'm a producer definitely but okay. uh mainly out of just efficiency i've had ex- experience the, the warren miller films when we went and go shoot a segment whether it was in kazakhstan or mongolia you know what you're seeing on the film and what you're used to with hollywood you would think we have this big gigantic crew there really we don't so we have uh we have a cameraman and the athletes usually. Oh. Sometimes you'd have a sound guy if they had a budget, but mainly you have the cameraman and the athletes. So the athletes had to, a lot of times take on the role of being a sound person or holding up the lighting or doing other parts of the behind the scene production. So when you were an athlete with a warm film, you were part of the production crew okay. too. So over all these years, I got to dibble and dabble in a lot of different parts of it and i'd ask a lot of questions um later on i was asked to help out with a um a cable television uh show that was a ski related show and my friend who's the host of it (laughs) (laughs) the dog's gonna <laughs> he finally said, "I want. He, I'm going to come through this door." We're high budget here, Chris. In case you hadn't noticed, say <laughs> on these. Just like I said, it's like a Warren Miller shoot. We we piece it all together. I take that it, as a compliment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, one of my um, friends that I grew up skiing with, she actually had her own television show. Okay. And she got space on um, at the time TCI Cable, and eventually became Fox Sports, and. Um, Scott, it's it's been around forever. It's awesome, but she, of course, is always trying to figure out ways to put segments together. And she recruited me um, to help her out because, that simultaneously, since I was doing all this Warren Miller stuff, I decided to see if I could um, get into film school. So I actually went to USC in California oh, wow. for film school for a little bit for graduate studies which only lasted about one semester. And then I did an internship for Mike Douglas out there. And so I learned a little bit about script writing and script stuff. And I wrote, I got commissioned by Warner Brothers to write a script. And um, one got covered. It never got made. But um, what was it about? It's a coming of age story about uh, three, um, three seniors at University of Colorado. One of them is a skier. But... um, Two of them, one's a musician and one's like just a goofy kind of Ferris Bueller type character. And uh, it's based off a little loosely off of a, a real life story. And it's coming of age, it's got a pretty serious angle to it. Um, deals with suicide a little bit. And um, it, was a, it was a really cool film. Or uh, I think it could be a cool film. It's a really cool script, but it's been shelved for years now. But uh, it, ha- having the opportunity to work on that whole passion project that 
actually was looked at for a little bit by the highest level, um, I learned a lot. So I spent some time in LA and in that side of the business. I've seen the business side. I've, you know, learned how to write scripts um, with my friend Brenda's show on, it's called Snow Snow Motion. Um, I kind of threw, was thrown into the editing side. So I would edit my own pieces together. Eventually, we were so, so low budget that I was hosting, editing, and uh, even finding friends' music to put together. And I put segments together for a show. So that was a crash course in all of this. So I guess you can say I'm taking all the skills that I've had to do one at a time yeah. and putting it all together now and um for this one project well it seems like a yeah as you as you look back and you start stand on the dominoes back up again it makes perfect sense and i I love stories like this when people are just taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it just all of a sudden just builds this momentum and turns into a, a cool project yeah i think that's just you know don't forget where you came from and who you are and just put all this together so it as you're describing it, it seems natural that you take the skiing and Colorado and the 10th mountain division and the movies. Like, why wouldn't you be making a documentary? Exactly. <laughs> this thing found me yeah. and it found me for a reason and it won't let me go. And it's, uh, it's definitely part of the, uh, yeah, everything. I think the, the journey in my life has led maybe to do this. And maybe this is part of something that'll lead to something else, but, Sure. The, the journey that this one project has sent me on has been remarkable, like over the last four years. Who I've met and the people I stumble across and what keeps dropping in my lap because of it. And I mean, even my last day in Italy, this last trip, when I went there to go get two very needed shots done um, to really kind of tie the story together, um, I was... The last night, the, the, the one of the guides, the backcountry guides that took me up at near up on Mangard, actually, uh, we got a heli flight up, and um, that guide called me up and he said, "Hey, will you join me for a glass of wine in a village outside of uh, right on the border of Slovenia?" So I said, "Absolutely." So I went there, joined him. His name was Paulo. As we were sitting there drinking uh, some wine another Paulo walked in and uh that Paulo didn't speak any English but he sat down with my Paulo the guide Paulo and they started talking and Paulo that walked in was asking why I was there the Paulo that that Paulo that walked in said he was the uh president of the local ski club and when he found out why I was there and what I was doing the research on he said that um in italian that his father was in the ski race <laughs> really yeah and <laughs> he he talked all about how they did the what it took to open the road to get up to the mountain which is part of the story that i need to tell and i didn't have any documentation of it so next thing i know that evening an hour later i have my two italian cameramen driving back into the village from an hour away and we go set up in the hotel library um, the two Paulos bantering back and forth in <laughs> Italian. And then my Italian friend here in Colorado translated it. So I have that now. And um, it's great because it's very much a part of the story. How did they get up to the snowfield? And But the fact that that just sort of happened 
over a glass of wine in, in a random bar in an Italian town that that guy walked in. That's how this whole thing has been, is the, these things keep happening this way. It's magic. You're, you're yeah. in the right place at the right time, and yeah. it says that this is what you should be doing. Yeah. That's really cool. Even weather-wise, uh, you know, so the, they documented, the Americans documented a lot during World War II. They had cameramen everywhere. It's crazy. They're in the middle of combat and everything. But they um, did not film the ski race. There's photos, but they didn't film it because it was so random. So I had to go recreate that. And um, so I did that last June, um, almost to match the date. And they had a heavy snow year, so that worked out great. But the road up to it was covered in avalanches and rocks and everything. And people out of the town of Bovitz went up and weeks before I got there were, like, clearing rocks off the road oh, and everything. So cool. And then they met me up there. Well, first of all, I was, like, throwing a dart at a dartboard with my eyes closed because I said, okay, I guess I'm going to fly over on this date and we'll get got permits to go up on the mountain on this date. And we'll try to get all these people together and all this clothing from 1945 together and show up here at this place at this time and go recreate a race. And um, anyways, I got I, I got there and it was raining, raining, raining and the weather was bad. And the day that we're supposed to do all this cleared up and we did it. And then the next day, raining, 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 raining. Like I couldn't have lucked out more. And even this last trip. When I needed this one shot to connect me with Mangart from a distance, from a top of another mountain, I, uh, yeah, I was looking on Google Earth, like lining up the shot from here in Colorado, and said, "Okay, if I get here, we should have Mangart in the background. If I have a drone come in from this side, again, got there. Weather, weather, weather. The day that we we picked for to do this, I climbed to the top of this ridge. The drone flew in from." Two miles away, we had clear skies. It all worked. Next day, raining, raining, raining. It, it was like, holy smokes, I'm supposed to do this. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll do as much as I can to help you out because <clears throat> I think it's a great project. And I've enjoyed seeing you. on When you mentioned the, uh, the Iran piece, that was one of my favorites yeah. in all the Warren Millers. I had actually forgotten about that. And just... It's a great project. It's a story that needs to be told for Colorado and for world history. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and telling the story. And I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it either. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be quite a journey to get from here to there, though. Yeah. yeah. So uh, chrisanthony.com has got all the information, the Youth Initiative Project, where to fundraise and donate and all that. And uh, is that the best place to get in touch? Yeah, people can definitely go right to my website. There's a donation button. That donation is for my youth project, but they can earmark, you know, if they want to support specifically this documentary. And I'll make sure that their names are in the credits, you know, as a special thank you. Uh, You can also go to Colorado Gives um, and look up Chris Anthony. That's a great way to donate because um, the, the fees are a little bit less and you get an immediate donation letter back oh, okay. for no matter how much you donate. Um, so that's a great way of doing it. And uh, again, you can earmark it. And uh, feel free to reach out and email me at any time at chris at chrisanthony.com and happy to share whatever. Awesome. Yeah. Donate some of that coffee money that you're paying to Starbucks to Chris and this 
awesome documentary. So <laughs> thank you. Great to finally meet you, Chris. Thanks for making the time. Absolutely. Thank you.